Welcome to episode 24 of the Woke Antidote podcast. Happy to have everybody here listening. And this is a special one, TB, because not only is it me and you today, we also have our first guest of the show. So Brandon from Green Candle Investments is here. I'm really pumped for this, and I think this is going to be a fantastic show. Yo, yo, what's up, fellas? I am very excited to be on here. Um, I know we, we had you guys on, on my pod uh, a while back, and I'm excited to kind of you know, flip the script and, and talk about some other things that I, I'm not really publicly talking about all the time. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm ready to get this rip going and uh, pumped to be here. Yeah, great to have you, Brandon. Welcome to the show. So yeah. I think we're going to get started here. Um, just just get, an, get an intro to, you know, what you're all about at Green Candle. So maybe why you started that, why you started the show and, and the writing, and then maybe just a little bit of a background of, of, of where you're at right now and, and how you got that knowledge. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess where it all started, I, I started looking into uh, investing and um, just trying to learn how to grow my money when I was in graduate school. So at that time, I uh, was going to grad school at Texas A&M. Uh, I was studying engineering and uh, I was driving Uber. Uh, so I was doing one of these like dead end jobs and uh, kind of working as a TA to to make a little bit of money. But, um, you know, that money didn't really go go that far. So I tried to figure out ways to, uh, you know, make that money go a little bit farther. And so I looked into investing. Uh, I got really into some podcasts. And uh, yeah, so then that brought me to just kind of um, starting my own investment account and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then from there, I started telling some of my buddies. Um, I uh, started this with a buddy named Dan. Uh, we both ran uh, cross country and track in college together. And uh, I was in a group message with him and he was the only one that really listened to me when I was like, hey, guys, like you need to start investing. Um, we're all about to start making money because I think majority of them were either just starting jobs or in graduate school of some way, shape or form. And so I was just like, yeah, yeah, guys, like, you know, let's get together. Let's kind of like give some ideas, figure out how to invest. Um and then uh, while I was doing that, coincidentally, uh, two of the podcasts that I was listening to, uh, both unrelated, one was just like kind of, uh, I think it was called like the Millennial Money Podcast or something. Uh, I don't really listen to it anymore, but it was uh, by like a, somebody in personal finance or that, uh, that works in investments and was kind of giving like personal finance tips, uh, started talking about Bitcoin. And then uh, I was listening to the We Study Billionaires podcast when Preston Pish was on that and uh, he had Saifedean and Plan B on back-to-back -back weeks and I'm like okay these two podcasts are totally unrelated and now I'm seeing all this stuff about Bitcoin so um, you know why don't I look into it um, so yeah like I said Dan was like really the only one that that listened to me and I was like okay well my friends aren't listening to me but I know that there's people out there like me that are kind of curious about this topic and investing as a whole. So uh, why don't we just like start making content? Uh, so we started writing a newsletter, um, then started like a Twitter account. And then it's kind of evolved into now I do, uh, you know, two newsletters a week and Twitter spaces and two podcasts now. And 
it's been pretty successful so far. Uh, you know, we, we met you guys through that and, and some other people made some great connections and everything. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's gone, it's gone a lot better than, than I initially expected. I just thought it would be kind of like a fun thing to do and kind of learn in public. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's starting to grow pretty rapidly now and, and it's got me really excited for what the future holds. That's awesome. No, you definitely have such a great story and, and your growth has certainly been noticeable. SB and I uh, have both been impressed with the trajectory that you're on. Um, I know you had a Twitter spaces the other week and there was almost a thousand people on there. Um, those are just insane numbers, numbers that SB and I can only dream of achieving one day. So kudos to you for, for growing this into to the beast that it is. And uh, for our listeners, it is really fantastic content. If you are really interested in anything in the markets or Bitcoin, uh, you know, Green Candle is definitely the place to be. Um, Brandon really turns out a lot of great content. And, you know, he's also been a great friend of the show as well. So, uh, again, super excited to have you on and, uh, you know, definitely looking forward to having you again, again in the future. Um, so I guess for uh, our, our next question for you is, um, you know, who, as you're growing out your show, kind of like, what, what's your vision for it? Is there anyone that's kind of on your wish list of uh, key speakers that you want to bring on? Uh, have you had any, any really interesting speakers on so far? Uh, would love for our listeners to, to hear about this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had a, a lot of, uh, you know, great speakers on and I've interacted with a lot of like, you know, big, big, so, somewhat big name people on Twitter. Uh, and it's awesome. You know, I, I'd, I'd really like to interview, you know, I guess in the bits, Bitcoin space, maybe like a, maybe get sit down with like a Jack Dorsey or, or, you know, maybe a Jack Maulers. I know he gets on the, uh, you know, the what Bitcoin did podcast and that's kind of the only one he really gets on, but you know, I guess that that'll be to the point where I, I realize I made it, but um, my vision for the show is just like, you know, I, I think uh, I, I have like kind of a, a different format than than what I hear on a lot of these other Bitcoin related shows and and maybe some of these other finance related shows strictly, I think, because uh, a little bit of, of my background and um, just because of, uh, I guess, the format. So what I usually do in my, in my Bitcoin podcast is I you know, go over the, the people's background. Um, and then we go over some current events to get uh, people's opinions on it. Because I think at the end of the day, everybody is a bit, everybody that's a Bitcoiner is just kind of like a pleb at heart, right? So they're following a lot of these current event stories, and other things like that, where, uh, you know, that they, they all have an opinion about how it affects the space and what they'd like to see for this from the space going forward. Um, so I think it's kind of unique where it's not necessarily talking to, you know, all these people who are building a lot of stuff, um, and kind of like getting into the weeds about it, but it's more like, you know, uh, current events, um, along those lines, uh, for Bitcoin. And then, um, my, my, uh, stock related podcast, I, I talk a lot about, you know, the macro environment and, uh, just kind of how either professional and retail investors that are like putting out content, just kind of how they look at analyze companies and like, look at the macro environment to just to kind of like, you know, it, selfishly it helps me like speak to a lot of brilliant people and uh help me kind of become an, a better investor myself um 
but yeah, I mean, uh, I've had, you know, Anas, Dr. Anas, who's, uh, been on TFTC, which is a Bitcoin podcast for those who don't know with Marty Bent. He's been on there and I've had, uh, you know, Michael Green in my, uh, Twitter spaces, who's, uh, you know, very active on there. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I've interacted with a lot of big people and kind of, uh, you know, heard them talk and, you know, heard them. Actually, I've had a couple of people come on right before they get on CNBC too, which is just, you know, wild to think about that. I, that I've just kind of started all this stuff, but I think you know, I, I have like a, a a couple people in mind, but um, you know, I I, I think I, I also just like to talk to the average person too, and like the average pleb, and uh, you know, that has like somewhat of a of a following that's like working in it and kind of boots on the ground or maybe bootstrapping a meetup too, because I think. You know, at the end of the day, everybody has like a little bit of a different Bitcoin journey and their experience in the Bitcoin world. And, you know, as far as investing as well, um, is a little bit different. And I think, you know, those stories are important to share to people where, you know, it's in maybe investing to somebody who's just getting starting into it is, is more of a daunting task. And, uh, yeah, so I'm trying to show everybody, yeah, like it's not maybe as daunting as everybody thinks. Like, you know, at the end of the day, most people don't really know what they're doing. And uh, we're all just kind of figuring it out uh, one day at a time. Yeah. One last question I have for you before we um, we, we move on to the next segment. I'm not sure if you have another question as well, SB. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, just thinking about your own journey into the investment space and how you, you share that you self-educated yourself. Um what were, what are kind of like the, some of the key learnings that you've, you've come like, do, what's your advice for, for our listeners who might be new to investing or might not be as, as educated as they like to be? Yeah. I mean, I just think there's a lot of content out there. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be mine. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, anybody specifically. I just think like, just start listening to stuff, start, start reading uh, books. You know, I think everybody kind of has their own way to, that they learn. Uh, there's books on tape and all these other things. Depends how technical you want to get. Um, there's a lot of uh, teachings from like Warren Buffett, right? And like some of these famous investors where I think a lot of people kind of start that way. So um, I think at the end of the day, what I wanted to start doing is like show people that, you know, there's, there's stocks, there's Bitcoin, there's real estate, there's other things, but there's also, you know, other ways that you can invest. Um, so, you know, I've even had like some things that I've written about, about like alternative investments. Like there's so many different things that you can do uh, to, or that you could buy and like kind of hold to invest in now where, um, you know, you could also get great returns. So I think like, you know, whatever somebody's really interested in, uh, you can find a way to kind of invest in that. You know, I know there's like crowdsourcing things where you can buy expensive bottles of wine and, and other things like that now where, like, you know, if wine's like maybe your thing and you're a big wine connoisseur, like maybe maybe that's what gets you started. And then you look into, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, buying a share of a wine vineyard or, or something along those lines. But I think, you know, maybe stocks and companies might not be for everybody or Bitcoin or, or crypto or whatever. But I think, you know, once you just start to put a little bit money into it and you find something that you're interested in or something that clicks... Uh, that that'll kind of help you send down the uh, help you go down that rabbit hole and uh, help you grow your wealth. And, and I think that's what the biggest 
thing and the biggest takeaway that I want like my listeners to, to get across is that it's not only, you know, like all these other things I talk about, you know, a bunch of different assets, a bunch of different things, but it's, uh, you know, it's everybody's own personal journey. So just because somebody who puts out some content says like, this is bullshit or whatever, like you don't necessarily uh, need to subscribe to that theory. You can find other people that, um, you know, uh, that that kind of uh, align with your ideologies and stuff too. So uh, I just encourage people to just kind of like look and, and get started, maybe put some money into something or an index fund and just kind of learn what what that is like the S&P 500 is real something easy to get into uh just kind of get started and once you get started I think uh you'll realize that the power of it and you'll uh definitely want to con- continue to keep growing your wealth nice I I love it man that's a great message and definitely for for any of our listeners that are interested in this kind of stuff follow green candle on twitter uh, not only for the content links, but because you will get notified of the spaces that you host, which are just fantastic. TB was mentioning it. You've had a thousand people in there. And these are just, you know, these are the brightest minds out there on financial Twitter talking. So, yeah, like like you said, there were there have been guests that the next day after the Twitter space, they were talking on NBC or CNBC. So, no, that's just fantastic. And now, now I want to maybe put you on the spot here, test a little bit of that knowledge. Let, let's uh, start talking actual um, the current markets and, and the Bitcoin price. So maybe get a, a little bit of your thoughts here on, you know, where are we at in, in the markets, both Bitcoin and stocks? And then you, you got any Bitcoin price predictions, either, you know, short term here, rest of the year, maybe, or, you know, and or long term, you know, where, where do you think this Bitcoin thing is going in the future? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know, maybe some Bitcoiners are going to get mad at me for this. But I think that we're kind of, you know, like what, what we've seen before is more like four year cycles, right? So if you kind of look back to Bitcoin's inception in uh, 2008, 2009, um, every time that there's a halving event. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, by now, a lot of your listeners are kind of familiar with the halving event. But for those that might be new, having uh, Bitcoins are mined daily and the amount of Bitcoin that is mined daily gets cut in half every four years or so. Uh, so the last halving event was in May of 2020. Uh, so the next one will be sometime in mid 2024. Um, so I think uh, right now we're kind of like halfway through, um, you know, that this uh, this halving and I think we're kind of going to float around this price um, for the next couple of years up until the next halving. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we kind of fluctuate between maybe, you know, 25 and 35K. Do I think we get lo- as low as 25K? I, I kind of doubt it. Um, I think maybe we've seen that the 28K and I, and I don't really think that we're going to get too much lower than that. Um and uh, above 30K, I, I kind of think we're just going to keep floating around. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of positive off-chain news, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of people now are just kind of forgetting about it. And the average Joe Schmo uh, retail investor doesn't really look at, you know, Bitcoin unless it's ripping. And then that's when you get a lot of these FOMO investors kind of diving in, and then that'll kind of push the price up. So I think we'll kind of float around here for a little bit. And uh, I think, you know, as Bitcoin goes on, we'll kind of get to that, 
you know, farther, like maybe like the super cycle period. So right now we kind of get uh, a big shoot sh shooting up, uh, you know, those big giant green candles. And uh, then we get some, some downward uh, trends as well. So I think, you know, we've reached the bottom or pretty close to the bottom of the downward trend. And we're just kind of, kind of be floating here until close to the next halving. Um, and then that's when we'll kind of uh, shoot up. Granted, you know, something also could happen where, you know, there, there's some sort of off-chain regulation or something where people kind of get fearful and uh, sell out of Bitcoin uh, for those weak hands. Um, I know we kind of had some news before this pod that um, the Biden administration wants to put some regulations on Bitcoin mining. So maybe if that um, you know, negatively affects Bitcoin mining in the States uh, and the hash rate dr drastically falls down, kind of similar to what we saw when China uh, banned Bitcoin. Maybe we'll see a, a little bit farther of a, of a drop. But I think, you know, as long as nothing like that or another maybe black swan event will kind of uh, hover around this price for, for now. And then, um, you know, as far as like shit coins and, and other things too, I think those are just going to kind of continue to keep falling. Uh, I think they're kind of dropping like flies at this point. We've seen, you know, the Luna debacle that I know you guys have talked about. And uh, yeah, we saw Solana's um, blockchain get shut down the other day too. So I think like as more and more of these uh, shit coins kind of get, um, you know, taken to the woodshed, uh, Bitcoin will kind of prevail. And we've, you guys talked about, you know, the decoupling on uh, either the last show or the one before. Um, so I think that's kind of a trend that's going to continue in these bear markets. And uh, obviously it's going to be positive for, for Bitcoin in the long run. And then as far as like the stock market goes, um, I think we're going to get in a downward trend. You know, I, I don't really see like any way that we can sort of avoid this impeding or impending uh, recession that we got. Uh, you know, I, I know that uh, you guys tweeted and, and I tweeted as well that uh, the prediction of GDP growth dropped from 1.9% to 1.3%. And we already had negative GDP growth in Q1 of this year. So I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, that continues. And it seems like too, like, you know, the I think it was the month of May numbers just came out that um, or maybe it was April um, that the the companies in the United States are hiring at a slower rate um, than, than ever before. So um, with as many jobs openings that, that, that they have. So I just don't really see I mean, there's so many signs of the economy not being healthy. I don't really see a bright future in the stock market. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of stocks were really overvalued after kind of the COVID boom and they kind of made a correction. And I think that that correction is not done yet. I think that they still need to uh, drop down a bit. And one thing that I'm really worried about is like a lot of these growth companies. Um, so we've seen a lot of these like growth and, and zombie somewhat companies that haven't really made any money. I know you've talked about, you know, Netflix or Debtflix. Uh, and, and some of these other guys, but uh, I think, you know, a lot of these big players that have had such easy access to capital uh, for such a long time, like now that that's going to get a little tighter, I think that we're going to see maybe some big players fall off or maybe have to get sold off, um, you know, in order to, to survive. And so I think, 
Um, I think there's going to be some bloodshed, uh, you know, coming up in the, in the stock market. Uh, but, you know, I think obviously the United States is, is proven to be pretty resilient and has proven to be pretty friendly to entrepreneurs. Um, so as long as that trend continues, I think, you know, eventually a lot of these companies and the strong ones with fundamentals and, and run properly will kind of bounce back. But, um, you know, in the end, I think some of these ones, uh, that are more growth that, that kind of prospered from a lot of this money printing, they're definitely going to, uh, drop down a bit. So we'll see. Uh, I think it's definitely going to be an interesting next, a uh, couple of years to say the least, at least uh, until, uh, you know, we, we see what happens in, in the next election or see how, uh, you know, they they handle all of this. Because, you know, at the end of the day, too, if, if there's a lot of bloodshed and they, they need to get another reelection, there could also be a, a massive uh, amount of money printing. Uh, it seems like, you know, the Fed's not afraid to really print a lot of money at uh, the snap of a finger, which could change a lot of things as well. So I think there's a lot of like varying factors here. But I think unless something drastically changes, I see a recession definitely coming along. Yeah, so uh, I, I completely agree with a lot of the points that you made. Um, SB and I talk a lot about this, actually, and we, we've been talking um, a lot recently on these topics so I, I raised this in one of our last episodes, but for me, you know, I'm a casual investor, not nearly as educated as SB is since he works in the financial space. For, for someone like me who just sees red everywhere, like w- what's your advice just to the casual investor that might just be scared off in the market right now? Is, is it best to kind of stand, stand pat and just kind of keep your, your money in, in liquid cash and just kind of wait? Or do you still, you know, is, do you see any avenues where it might be a safer play to store your money? Like, what should what should the casual investor be doing during a recessionary period like this? So I, I think that's a great question, and I'm by no means a financial advisor, so don't take my, uh, you know, advice as as uh, the holy grail or holy bible or anything like that. I'm, you know, strictly sharing my opinion and all that. But I think, you know, if if you have companies that that you believe in. And you believe that they're going to be prosperous long term. If you like some things that you see, like, for example, one of the companies that I really like right now is Square. And they announced today that they're uh, going to be working with Apple to kind of implement that tap to pay with their Square terminals. Um, So Square known as Block. And they're doing a lot of different things for for point of sale and uh, just kind of trying to be their overall like financial ecosystem. I think they're doing a lot of great things. So square, square prices jumped a bunch today. They might drop a bunch tomorrow. Who knows? But uh, that's one company that I would kind of like DCA in. Or, you know, if you kind of believe in the U.S. stock market overall, like, you know, the S&P is, is definitely something solid. Like if you want to DCA into it, you know, go ahead. I think like dollar cost averaging are, uh, is is basically the best way to go. I think, you know, trying to time a market, especially for somebody that's not really into, you know, that's that, uh, that realm. And it isn't really about like analyzing charts or analyzing finances. I think once you get conviction behind your investments, you're a lot, uh, you're, you're more able to like kind of ride those waves and ride the volatility. So I, you know, square is something that I truly believe in. So that's a company that I'm going to buy and if it drops today or drops tomorrow, like it doesn't matter because that's something that I'm going to hold, you know, for 10, 
15, 20 years, something that I'm going to plan on holding for a while, unless my thesis changes. So I think just kind of riding the, those waves. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always recommend to people to just DCA into Bitcoin. Um, so if like stocks aren't your thing, or if you're, you're curious about Bitcoin, like I would say start throwing some some of that uh, little dirty fiat that way, because I think, you know, right now, kind of like how I was describing, it's going to float around here for, for a while, but then, you know, you've seen these massive shoot, shooting up. Right. And so you don't want to be caught in to this position where you're just hoarding a lot of cash waiting for a drop, right. Because that drop may never come. And then, uh, you know, you could be DCAing into it at this point. And then, uh, you know, you'll get like a little bit, maybe not the best opportunity to buy, but timing something is extremely difficult. So I think, you know, for the average person, DCAing in or into either a stock you like or Bitcoin or both or whatever is the best for peace of mind. And I think like, you know, at the end of the day, you really, um, you really, uh, it, it'll come out like to maybe a little bit worse of a result than, than timing it perfectly, but it's not going to be that much worse in my opinion. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of these things like, okay, you could have made maybe a little bit more if you bought the exact bottom at the COVID, uh, you know, 2020 drop, but you know, not everybody can time that perfectly. I just think when, when people are fearful, um, it's always like a kind of a good time to get into things. So I would say, you know, like people always say, uh exactly like i said you know when people are fearful that that's the time to kind of strike and so i i that's how i kind of see the time right now so uh put time to put your money where your mouth is and and start uh you know just buying into something that you believe in and that's that's the most important thing i right now is just it's something that you believe in because that that conviction is uh worth more than than dollar figures in my opinion I, I love it, man. And that is fantastic for our audience because we do talk finance and Bitcoin, but it's only a part of our show. So, yeah, for anyone out there that, that wants more from Brandon on this, I mean, this was fantastic. You know, go to his Twitter, go to um, go to his content. And, and yeah, on that final point, you know, it's why buy high or buy low and sell high. Um, it's why that's so powerful, because the human emotion almost doesn't let us do that because when things are crashing in price, you actually want to sell it because you could think it could go lower and vice versa. You get FOMO when things are ripping higher. And that's why TB and I, we, we always talk about the DCA, the dollar cost average. I'm glad you brought it up as well. It's DCA and chill. It's if you believe in something, you don't have to time it perfectly. Put a little bit of money in here and there. Have your 401k going. Have an investment going um, every so often. And it basically takes the emotion out of it, which is great because I think all of us kind of fall prey to that. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you touched on that and your overall market commentary. Now I think we got to turn to the wokeness here. So we've, so we've given the audience a fantastic intro uh, to your content and talking about financial markets of Bitcoin. Let's hop over into the woke. And I know you have been saying that you really want want a, a takedown of LeBron here. So I, I think with the NBA playoffs in full swing, the finals are happening tonight. We're recording um, right before that starts. Why don't we just give you the floor? And, you know, the, the, the thing is, what do you want to talk about with LeBron here? Oh, man. All right. So 
this is a guy that has absolutely ruined the NBA for me. So a little bit of background of myself is, um, you know, I love the sport of basketball. I'm, I'm a short guy. So I, I played it in middle school, but didn't play it in high school because you know, I'm five foot six. So at the end of the day, God didn't bless me with those genes. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little guy. So, uh, I, I just always loved it and always been fascinated to it. And, uh, at the time when I was, uh, you know, growing up, I was a Bulls fan. I was born in Chicago. Um, so that was kind of the team was the Chicago Bulls. I loved the Cubs and, uh, and the Bears, too. But, but growing up, the Bulls were always my team. And, uh, you know, right when I was getting to college age, um, I uh, was looking at schools to go to and to run track. And I was kind of like a mid-major athlete at the time. And I was looking at uh, schools, particularly with good basketball programs, just to kind of uh, figure out where to go. And so I ended up going to the University of Memphis. And part of that reason was because Derrick Rose went there. And so Derrick Rose was a big uh, you know, influence on me going there. And uh, yeah, he went to, to uh, and he was like, you know, the Bulls star player for, for quite a long time while I was in college. And so, you know, he had the knee injuries and everything like that, but LeBron was in the East for all the time that I was growing up. And once he started that, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. It just gave me the absolute worst taste in my mouth because, you know, the Bulls and like all these other teams, they, they basically have become at whims to these superstar players. And that's what frustrates me the most is that now a small market team like, uh, you know, a Milwaukee Bucks, they'll get lucky every now and then with a player like Giannis and kind of build around him. But at the end of the day, you're getting all these teams now that are kind of realizing like all these superstars have to jump from team to team or they try to team up or whatever to try to, you know, just chase a championship for every season. And I think that is a big part and reason because of LeBron James moving to, um, moving to, to Miami. And he did that for a couple years. And, um, you know, in the meantime, he, uh, then he went back to Cleveland, right. And he kind of took stranglehold of the front office of the Cleveland Cavs. And granted, I, I don't, I don't like the Cleveland Cavaliers. I've never had a real opinion on them, but the way he kind of took advantage of their GM, you know, he did year to year contracts and granted, you know, Michael Jordan and other superstars have done that, but, LeBron got players like Tristan Thompson and J.R. Smith some big-ass deals that they did not deserve. And he did that to basically say, like, hey, you got to pay my buddies or else I'm leaving, right? So he's continually done that, and then he just whines and whines and whines whenever he uh, gets the opportunity. And so it's not only that he's just jumping from team to team. I don't like the way he conducts himself uh, overall. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that he kind of takes advantage of, of being like the face of the NBA. And I think the overall product of NBA basketball has kind of gone down the toilet with him being the face of the NBA. Granted, it's probably not a hundred percent his fault, but I think, you know, as the face of the NBA, as the, you know, uh, whatever you want to call him, superstar of the league, it definitely tarnishes the product or he influences it more than anybody else. Right. So I think just the way that he's jumped from team to team, the way he conducts himself in these interviews where 
he'll go and uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's just more access, more access to social media or the things that he says, but I don't know, just everything he does just drives me nuts, man. <laughs> I mean, he just like, he, he just kills me. I, I mean, like you'll see things like he'll say uh, such contradictory things in the news too, where it will be, um, like the NBA expanding their playoffs. He'll say it's such a great thing for the NBA to expand the playoffs, get these play-in teams, and then all of a sudden the Lakers are in a play-in game and he thinks it's the worst thing in the world. Um, and it's just so many things that are contradictory that he just seems like one of those guys that has so many yes men around him that have never just like kind of told him like, hey, buddy, like this isn't funny or this isn't like a good thing to say or anything like that. It's just a bunch of people kind of like milking off of him. And I think like he's kind of made this culture in AAU and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of starting to trickle down into college basketball and college sports. Where, but it kind of started, I think, with him where it's like all these athletes are kind of becoming a little bit more entitled. And it's like these NBA teams, unless you get a superstar where it's either from their hometown and, and can recruit other players and has other buddies in the league, or, um, you know, they, they get lucky in the draft, which I mean, like some of these teams like tank forever and they'll never get lucky. Like, you know, I don't know, look at like the Sacramento Kings, like they've never really been good in for, for a very long time. And, and like some of these other smaller market teams, they'll never get like a superstar there. So I think like just the way that he's conducted himself and bounced from team to team has just overall made the NBA product severely, severely worse because, you know, when it comes down to it at the end of the year, when you get to the playoffs, I think this is maybe like the first year in a while where it was like, okay, you don't really know what teams should get to the NBA finals. You don't really know, like, you know, it, like the, for, for a period in time, it was always the golden state warriors and the Cavs when LeBron was on there and, and it didn't matter how the regular season would go because people would take rest days and other things like that and rest their bodies and, and all this and that when, you know, now it's just uh, a little bit more competitive. And I think that's, that's because partially because he's not, you know, running the league as much as he used to. And he's probably focused on more of his like off the courts earnings. Um, but yeah, man, I just like the guy. Just I, I can't stand him. I don't see how anybody could actually like this guy. And and for all those who are listening that think he's better than Michael Jordan, you could, um, I, I mean, come on, like this guy like lacks such a killer instinct. It drives me nuts. So, I don't know. Are you guys like LeBron James fans? Like, what's your opinions on LeBron? You're just letting me rant over here. Brandon, this is music to my ears because I'm a well documented LeBron hater. For all those reasons you mentioned him just really watering down the NBA. And like you said, before the, the, the first ball was tipped of the season, you would know it'd be Cavs Warriors. And like Kevin Durant did the same thing. They followed the LeBron super team model that he started in Miami. And it's just, it cheapens the win. Like you have to put an asterisk next to that because how much of that was earned. And you're right. He, he lacks that killer mentality that a Jordan had back in the day or a Ewing or a Charles Barkley, uh, those types, uh, types of guys. They they just they were professionals. They they won. They weren't all about their own self promotion. Like how many tweets and Instagram posts do we see from LeBron bragging about how great his life is, or you know getting into Twitter wars with people and getting petty about that? And, and I think it's that latter point that that's why I hate him so much. Is like how divisive he is, and like 
I actually truly think he is a terrible role model for children. Uh, I will recognize he does a lot of great charity work in, in Ohio and like great for him. Like I'm not just discounting that whatsoever. If you're in a position to do that, like great, good for you. Like that's fantastic. I'm never going to uh, downgrade that. But what I mean by him being a terrible role model is that he will speak out against people that he disagrees with. Like there was an ESPN reporter who was critical of him and he went out of his way to speak to ESPN executives to get her fired. I, I forget her name at the moment, but it, this was a documented story recently where she came out saying that he was trying to get her fired. Um, re, he had that whole in, uh, situation with the Houston Rockets in China where uh, Maury, the, the GM uh, or president of the, of the Rockets, he spoke out about how China was trying to take over Taiwan and that it's not a democracy. And LeBron was so quick to say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He shouldn't have said anything. So he really showed his, his, his cards there that he is subservient to his China base, that he cares more about money than, than truth. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's just all about his own self-promotion. And that's what frustrates me the most. He's incredibly selfish. He speaks out on social issues that he's often wrong on and hateful. Like there was that incident where a cop shot a, a, a black uh, teenager because she was literally about to stab one of her friends and it was on video. And LeBron James took a screenshot of the, of the cop and wanted people to harass him. And then he like later took it down, but gave like a, a half-assed apology. I mean, I can go on and on about this, but it's all those examples of just like, at the end of the day, he's just a very self-centered person. And I think he's just like a terrible representative for children. He's, he's been bad for the brand of, of basketball. Like he is athletically probably the most gifted NBA player of all time. He should be in the pantheon of, of, of the greatest. And uh, because of his personality, because of, of how he chooses to live his life, he will always have haters. Um, and it's because of his own doing. Like, yes, there's no denying his athletic greatness and what he's accomplished. But um, because of the way he's chosen to be so political and divisive, he's always going to have haters. Like like Michael Jordan, he, was, he once was quoted as saying, Republicans buy sneakers too. He got it. He didn't really delve into politics even though he likely uh, probably wasn't a Republican. So, you know, I, 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 you know I'm, I get heated talking about LeBron because I just don't get the love for him. If you look beyond the basketball court, just him as a person, there's just a lot of like really just gross things about him that should turn off a lot of people. Well, exactly. And I, and I don't really, you know, they get mad about like the whole shut up and dribble comments or, or, or other things like that too. Like, okay, if an athlete wants to get political or whatever, like they have all these channels that they can do that, right? And so I think like they, they use the the media and like their interviews and everything like that to get political every now and then. I know you guys talked about, you know, Steve Kerr and, and some of these other you know people getting up in press conferences and, and talking about that stuff too. And it just, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me, like, why they, they do that there and not just only on their own platforms or other things like that. Um, you know, they're always trying to send a message. And uh, it's only for, like, specific cases, like you said. Like, they will, they'll never say anything against China. Uh, LeBron even said, like, you know, like, if it doesn't want to hurt your, your pocketbooks or you need to watch what you say because it hurts people's pockets. And uh, like, so he flat out admitted it, like LeBron, China's in LeBron's pocket. And, uh, you know, it's just like, I think it's just like the mentality. Like I said, like, I think 
so many people have been like yes men and he's been you know on the cover of sports illustrated since he was like a high school calling him like the next greatest player and i think you know maybe it's it's the publicity or something like that that he received in high school or, or some of these others but you know it, it's like i remember a few years ago when they were in the uh nba championship and it was just simple uh simple smack talk between draymond green and lebron came up Draymond said to LeBron, you're a bitch. That's all he said. And LeBron freaked out and said, how am I a bitch? I'm a father of three kids. That's all I said. Like, how do you like not even like get, get to that? And like, like, that's what you, that's what your reply is. Like, it's not even like any kind of smack talk. And I know, um, you know, SB here's a, a, a Celtics fan. So, I mean, I, you just think of like players like Kevin Garnett, when you hear those stories of like how much shit they talked on the court now, it's like LeBron is like so mentally weak. He can't even handle like just one simple comment. And I think that that's kind of the, the parasite that's gotten into the NBA where it's like, there's very few people in the NBA now that I would say have that dog mentality where it's like, all right, get the fuck out the way, give me the ball and I'm going to score, go get a bucket and do whatever it can. It's all these players that are, you know, big divas and uh, need to be with, you know, whoever's team they're they're with they need to be buddied up with their friends and i think like it all starts at the top and it's trickled down lebron's the first one that's been pushing for you know all these players to kind of run these teams and you know we've had like instances like ben simmons who's not even that great of a player if you think about it like sure he's an nba guy but i in my opinion he's more of like a glue guy opposed to like a superstar and he's holding teams hostages so if we like where's the line Right. Like it's it's uh, and, and I think that that 100 percent started with LeBron because like he got players like Tristan Thompson and J.R. Smith with these big old heads that like, hey, you know, they need to get max contracts because they're friends with LeBron. So if you get buddy buddy with LeBron or you get buddy buddy with another big superstar like a, a Kevin Durant or somebody along those lines that can like change a franchise. Well, like your life can be set up fine just because you're friends with these guys and they're going to stranglehold the GM if they don't, you know, do what they want to do or do what you want to do. And so it's just made the product of the NBA so much worse. And it's just very frustrating because I think, you know, if you watch the NBA, it's so much better of a product uh, than college basketball, but I'd much wa rather watch a college basketball team because there's just our college basketball game. Cause there's so much more variance there. You never know. Like the number one team could come out flat and like lose to, I don't know, some unranked team and, uh, or, you know, there's some big upset in the tournament, but you know, now it's like the NBA, the regular season doesn't even really matter. Uh, you know, you could be like a six seed or, or a five seed or whatever, and kind of come out through the top. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just think overall, it's just kind of like he, the way he shaped the NBA and the way he conducts himself off the court is just like, it's just terrible. And, uh, you know, he gets political and does all these things. And, and, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think anybody really cares or like it goes for it. Cause I, I think he backed like Hillary Clinton in 2016 and he was like on stage with her and all this stuff. And, uh, during some of her, her talks, and saying how he was going to vote for her and everything. And then, you know, Trump ended up winning that election. And then, um, you know, all these NBA teams now are trying to make political statements whenever they 
win uh win an nba championship it's like you know some people will go to the white house when trump was president and some of them would, wouldn't and it would be a very divisive thing and i think that all kind of started with you know lebron and and a lot of those teams trying to make these political statements everywhere you turn like it should be an honor to go to the white house no matter who's the president like at the end of the day like that's half the country is doesn't like the president that's just by nature of you know what it is and some and sometimes you know their approval ratings lower than others but at the end of the day like it's it's not just a like a, a thing about politics it's like a respect thing overall for your country and i think um you know the way that he he's conducted himself has just kind of you know like you said been very divisive and uh it's just kind of par for the course of what, what's been going on in this country right now and it's just very frustrating that you know, a lot of people use sports as, as somewhat of an escape from their everyday life and, and all these things, but, you know, they're just throwing it in your face every single day and, uh, you know, shoving you, shoving your, your face with, with all this wokeness. And it's like, all right, you can't disagree with these people without, um, you know, it being a big ordeal. So I don't know. I just, I, I think the NBA is going to be a better place when, with him not in it. And, uh, I hope that he's going to kind of come come close to retirement, but I, I already see what, what's going to happen is he's going to want to play with his son when he comes into the NBA and he's going to stranglehold the Lakers or whatever franchise he's on or whatever franchise drafts his son to pay his contract and be on his team, be on that team. Um, so uh, I just see like, kind of like the NBA, the product has been a lot worse. And I think, you know, the ratings have gone down and people like just don't really enjoy that. And I think like a big part of that is because of the who's been the biggest stu- superstar in the league. So uh, I think, you know, there's a perfect balance between uh, being for for a team and for a player. And uh, I think LeBron has shifted the tide too far one direction. And uh, I think it's it's made for a worse product in the NBA, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with both you guys. LeBron started it. I, I think uh, in my heart, the the KD joining the 73-9 and nine Warriors, I mean, that's always – that's the spot that I look at and say just un, unbelievably soft move. And in general, KD is a pretty soft guy too, and you wonder if he's taking cues from LeBron. But look, I don't think we're alone because if you look at the ratings for this playoff specifically – they're up over the past couple of years. And I think a big reason of that probably is that LeBron isn't there. So he's not stirring up controversy. He's not making woke political statements during the playoffs. He's been out of the public eye. And instead, you have these homegrown teams. You have Tatum and Brown. Celtics fans like my, myself have been growing up with these guys over the past couple of years, almost like a college team back when people were there for three, four years. Um, Warriors, I mean, the Warriors have been in the in the championship now um, so many years. And so it's been an incredible run to see Curry climb up. They won initially. And now years later, um, they have kind of a new crop of guys because the team drafted really well, recovered from injuries, and now they're in a great spot. So I think this finals is going to be fun. And to your point about the league potentially being in a better spot after LeBron, you know, that's been a, a debate back and forth of, you know, people look back at when MJ left in the late 90s and they go ratings just fell off a cliff and interest fell off a cliff and people weren't weren't as willing to watch and, and pay for the NBA. Potentially, you've got the opposite coming with LeBron, where 
LeBron's made the league so boring and so political and so divisive for so long that when he's gone, maybe it makes room for some of these younger stars that aren't as politically woke and are, are more having fun with the game rather than almost looking at it as a part of their business. I know there was that news, I think, today that LeBron's a billionaire. So he's certainly he's using his performance in the league to grow outside of the league. And I think everybody does that to a certain extent. But when you're as divisive as him, it's kind of unfortunate when he, he has this much of a stranglehold in the league. So, yeah, I'm, um, I'm positive on the league going forward if we have a little bit less of LeBron, which I definitely don't think I would have said five years ago. So, yeah, I think be- before we move on here, uh, I think we do have to say, um, TB, you've got your Rangers. I've got my Celtics. And look, I think uh, the Lightning, that, w- that was a tough game the other night, wasn't it? <laughs> I know, Brandon. I was really hoping uh, that you were a Lightning fan, so I could give you some shit. But uh, look, uh, it, we have some SB. You and I are on a heater right now. Both look uh, Rangers in the Eastern Conference Finals, six-two win over the Ranger of the Lightning in Game One last night. They looked fantastic. Your Celtics in the back in the finals. Um, so you know it's it, positive vibes over here. But yeah, I mean, the Rangers. They shouldn't even be here right now. Uh, they should technically still be rebuilding, and everyone keeps doubting them. And then off the backs, off of their likely Vezina winner uh, goalie, Igor Shosturkin, uh, the Rangers are just clicking at the right time. They are just hot now. They had that tough series in Pitt when it looked like they were going to get uh, crushed pretty early on, but they shaked off the rust. You know, they're a very young team, and now they're they're really playing into their own like the rangers have this line that they call the kid line where these players are i think they're like 22 and younger uh they're they're really they're really young uh they're basically all rookies and they are just like maturing before before our eyes and they're becoming so dominant they had this one great shift last night where they held the puck in the in tampa's possession for like a minute or more and every time Tampa tried to clear the puck, the Rangers would keep it in, and they finally scored. Uh, Philip Cheadle, um, he scored. So it's 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 been a fun, a really fun team to watch. Like again, I still think they're too early to be Cup contenders. Uh, Tampa, you know, they're back to back champs. So you know, they got that championship pedigree. I expect them to to bounce back. It's going to be a, a tough series. I, you know, I'm not celebrating anything yet, but you know, I'm enjoying the ride while I can. And then SB for your Celtics. Um, you know, it, it's nice to see a fresh face, you know, it's, uh, you know, the Warriors, you know, they've, they're not the, the super team as before. They don't have Durant. You know, I actually do uh, like how they built their team as, as you alluded to before, but, you know, I hate to say this as a New Yorker, but uh, for once I, I, you know, maybe I wouldn't mind seeing a Boston team winning and I know it's probably sacrilege, but uh, you know, I am looking forward to that series. Wow, I, uh, I can't believe what I'm hearing. But yeah, it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be on in a couple hours. So, uh, so next step, we'll certainly have an update for you. But we want to move on here because uh, TB, um, you're Hispanic. You've given out some fantastic insight over the course of the pod about your experiences being Hispanic and how that's kind of being reflected now in the, the world of politics where Hispanics are shifting pretty significantly right and there's been some reaction to that from the Democrats that isn't so pretty. So with Brandon being Hispanic as well, um, I, I want to give the floor to TB here um, to kind of just let let you guys give give some additional insights on on what's just going on here. 
Yeah, well, well, first, I, I had no idea, Brandon, that you were Hispanic until um, I think we had like a Twitter exchange uh, like a couple of weeks ago where you made a joke about it, about being Hispanic. So I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that. So I knew I, I knew I liked you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely interested to hear your take. But, you know, being a Hispanic conservative, this is a topic I, I speak a lot about on this show. Uh, I think it's just such an important thing to shed light on because, what you hear in the news and from uh, the media and from your woke friends and, and relatives is that no minorities can are, are conservative, that that's sacrilege, that you can't do that. It's impossible. And then I, I really like being able to speak on this from a perspective of conservative Hispanic because I debunked that myth. I shed some light that actually there are people who are from minority communities who don't all think liberally or, you know, that have conservative ideologies. And I try to, to explain, and, and I hopefully I've been successful in doing so, that none of my views are based in any, like, you know, uh, I, ideal to, be, to become white or based on any hate or judgment of other people. It's more so shaped by the experiences of my, of my ancestors, uh, the experience of my family and relatives, as well as my own. And that that has shaped, shaped, uh, shaped my worldview into be, be, becoming conservative, because at least from my perspective, my family, they immigrated here from South America. They, they waited their turn and, you know, they came to the country with very little and were able to build themselves into success story. They never once asked for handouts. They never once victimized themselves. They worked really hard. They taught themselves how to speak English and they've been able to provide a better world for their children and then now their grandchildren than the world that they they found. So I think that's just a beautiful story and it's a beautiful reflection of the American dream. And uh, it, it just, it always frustrates me, Brandon, when people say that people like us, we, we can't be conservative because, you know, frankly, I, I think that's like, that's, that's a very racist way of, of, of viewing things. Like if you're taking people from granted, you are, you know, just ignoring everyone's worldviews. You're ignoring everyone's individual personalities and experiences. And you're just really just boiling down to their political ideology and say, yep, you can only vote this way because of the color of your skin or because of your ethnicity. I think that's just a narrow minded way of viewing the world. So I'd love to open the floor to you to kind of share your experience because we, we've never actually never talked about this, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear like your background and kind of, you know, what kind of drives your your uh, your views and kind of how do you view this this topic of people saying that you can't be a conservative if you, if you are Hispanic. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you, you nailed it on the head, but um, a, a little bit of my experience and I, and I always appreciate, you know, when you go into it, TB as well. So uh, just that anecdotally, but uh, my my grandmother uh, was uh, is Mexican, born in Mexico. Uh, my mom was actually the first born uh, American child. Uh, she's the third one of my grandmother's. So uh, she was the first born American, born in Chicago. Um, and they grew up there, kind of moved around. Uh, she was like a single mother of four. Uh, she came, worked the night shift, my grandmother, um, and, and did everything like that to try to you know, put a roof over her head. But, but to be honest, my mom didn't have the, the greatest upbringing. Um, and my dad, uh, he's uh, he's more, he's white. Um, so he's, he's Greek. Um, and that's kind of where like a lot of the, I guess maybe, maybe the heritage or anything like, uh, kind of, kind of comes into play. But, um, my dad is a second generation, uh, Greek American who was, you know, born and raised in Chicago. 
And uh, they met there and uh, they, you know, they hit it off and, and everything like that. And being, um, you know, and during that time, my, my family, it, it wasn't exactly like, I guess, the easiest thing for, for my parents, um, just kind of, you know, dealing with that interracial uh, thing during that time. But, um, you know, they're still together now. And I, I think they're 30 something or close to 30 years in marriage. So, uh, you know, it seemed to, to work out pretty well. And, and I'm one of four uh, kids, but my, uh, my parents moved from Chicago to Austin because my dad was self-employed and my mom was kind of helping him with his business. And uh, he was able to kind of move it remote and be like a remote worker before, you know, this whole like, uh, remote working craze, but they moved to a neighborhood in Austin that was small and then Austin blew up um, and it became this big old neighborhood. And then, um, you know, as I was going there, I was kind of the first person to, or the first, you know, person in my family to go to these different schools. Like my middle school, I, I think my older sister went to one that was maybe 45 minutes away. I went to one that was in my neighborhood and uh, kind of same thing with the high school. And I was the first graduating class of my high school, um, which was like probably, I, would, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but very, very predominantly white and pretty well off were, were majority of the people. So, um, and it was in Austin, right? So it, it's a lot of kids whose, whose parents were um, well off, but also maybe uh, left leaning. Um, some of them were, were more maybe right and conservative, uh, but o Austin overall as a city is very left-leaning. So, um, you know, a lot of my friends growing up uh, were all kind of, uh, you know, liberal and everything like that. And I didn't really know what to think about it because my parents are both, uh, you know, heavily Republican. And, uh, you know, just kind of as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized like, you know, why um, they, they don't really like, there's a saying that I heard that if you're uh, 20 and not democratic, you don't have a heart. And if you're 30 and not Republican, you don't have a brain. And that's <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of the way that, you know, that I've been, uh, that, I, that just from like my world experiences that I've, I've gone through and just felt because I think like, you know, once you get through some of these things, it's like all good and plenty, but you know, my parents really taught me to really think things through and think critically. So, you know, when, when some of these policies that sound all good on paper, like, you know, free healthcare and all that stuff, it's like, well, where is this money coming from? And, and some of these other, the other policies that, you know, you guys have discussed on the show, it's like, it, it sounds great. And it's like trying to, to argue with people with, uh, based on like emotions. And I think that is the the kind of the divisiveness that, that the left plays on is that they try to get people all emotionally riled up where I think, um, you know, my parents and kind of, uh, you know, my engineering background has always kind of made me think like real logically and, and kind of think through it step by step, opposed to trying to get emotions involved in it. And so I think just like the combination of the two has just kind of led me to you know, being more so uh, right-leaning opposed to, to, to liberal. And I think, um, you know, it's funny because, because I'm, you know, right-leaning and, and uh, you know, Republican and everything like that, I get a lot of the, the kids that I grew up with uh, who are, you know, are predominantly white, always calling me racist uh, because I voted for, because uh, I voted for Trump and, and other things like that. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I, 
it's it's just always ironic to me that they're the ones calling me you know racist and then i'll bring it up well i was like well you know i've had some people be racist towards me or or had some encounters that way and they'll say well i forgot you're you're even hispanic and i'm like okay well that's is that racist that you say that to me that way and, and other things like that so i mean it's just been kind of like like you say like it's almost, uh, you know, what what is what is the saying that 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 people, you know, always say like, are, are you know, African Americans can't be, uh, you know, Republican. I know Joe Biden even said like during the campaign, like if you don't vote for me, you're not black, like things like that, and that those statements as like a minority and people that have grown up uh, uh, are more worrisome to me than than anything that that Trump ever said. And that's strictly just because like those people are trying to hide, you know, what they really are and what, you know, the, what the, what their actual beliefs are. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just overall, it just like, it just really bugs me that, you know, you can't really think of somebody think or have different ideas than, than somebody else when they're, when they're on the left without being something like a racist or something like that to them. And it's just like, you know, you keep trying to argue or have like logical or even have just like sit down conversations with them and be like, okay, well, this, this doesn't make any logical sense. Um, and it's like arguing, like, like I said, like an, an emotionally riled up argument. And it's hard to kind of bring somebody where their emotions are so tied into it and bring it back to kind of a logical explanation. And so, you know, to be honest, like as we, as as things have kind of gotten a little bit more heated politically, especially with, with COVID and things like that, like I've definitely lost some friends and, and don't talk to, you know, as many people as I used to. Um, and uh, a big reason of that is just because they knew I, you know, I voted Republican and, and it's nothing that I said or, or judged or anything with them. Um, you know, I was always open with them and I always listen. Um, and that's what I always try to do is like take, you know, both sides of everything and that's just kind of how I, I approach everything is like, I always try to poke holes in my own stuff to kind of think critically, but um, you know, it, it's, it's just very frustrating that you get labeled something so right away, just because you think a little bit differently. And I think that's a big, big issue in our country that uh, right now people are get, becoming, uh, you know, really, or things are becoming really divisive just because of the political standing and i think you know through this whole covid pandemic and everything like that people's political views have never been uh more evident and uh more to the forefront of people but i think uh the tide is kind of changing um with that and i think uh you know a lot of uh hispanics and maybe like some minorities especially in florida here um you know when uh when trump said that uh, a lot of Biden's policies were, were kind of socialist. Um, some counties that are predominantly Hispanic and that always, uh, always vote, you know, Democratic, they've been the closest they've ever been to flipping. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of people, especially in the Hispanic community, are kind of waking up to this. And they're not really falling for the whole thing where it's like, OK, you know, if you're a minority, you have to vote this way. I think the tide is kind of changing. And uh I hope it kind of continues just for, for the sake of everything going on here. Uh, Brandon, I have to say you're reading my mind here because I was literally about to ask you why you think that shift is happening and if there is one. So uh, thank you for, uh, for getting ahead of the curve there. But 
I think you're absolutely right. There, there is a, a shift happening, and I've talked a, a lot about this on the show. But uh, the primary reasons I would say is that uh, a lot of people from Hispanic and Latino communities they're coming from places that have embraced communism or socialism, and they've seen what you know that that extremism looks like and how it can it's really harmful to citizens, and, and it it doesn't promote democracy, and it makes people poorer. Like, look what's happening in Venezuela right now. It's an absolute, you know, just a humanitarian crisis there. So, um, you know, they see what, what, what happened there and they fled it and they come to America. And then they see these people who, for whatever reason, are advocating for similar things. And they're thinking, no, I, I just left. You know, hell no, I'm not, I'm not having this come back. So I think it's that. And then secondly, also that, you know, Hispanic and Latino uh, communities are also religious. So when you have that type of perspective, that tends to align more with the Republican Party. And I, I think I think that's why we're seeing a big shift here. And, you know, I, I do want to touch on the comment you made, because the entire time you were talking, I was just nodding my head because you are literally speaking exactly everything that I've, I've experienced in life. So it's completely validating. And, you know, I, I will say that people on the left or the, you know, the, at least the people I've encountered, they can't fathom people having you know, voting a certain way or having certain views for any other reason but race. They see race in everything. And I said this to SB before on our show, and, and I genuinely mean it. And it's the absolute truth. The only time I've ever encountered racism from other people is from someone from the left where they made derogatory comments about me, about my skin color or about me betraying my people, um, you know, pointing out that I'm different. That's only ever come from the left uh, in person, as well as online on Facebook and Twitter. And it's, you know, for for a party or an ideology that claims to be so accepting, uh, they're they're not. They're the exact opposite. Uh, If you don't if you're not in lockstep with them, then you're an outcast to them and you're you are you know, not worthy of respect. You're not worthy of, of, you know, humanity. It, it really is some nasty stuff. So, you know, I, I think we, as you say, we're talking about this shift, you know, I think with Hispanics moving right, that's certainly a sign, but I think, you know, our, you know, we're becoming a smaller world out there. And I think people are realizing that, um, you know, just because you have a different ideology um, doesn't make you this horrible, irredeemable person that, you have your reasons for it. Um, so I, th- I think you, your experience, it's, it's very similar to mine. And I'm so happy that we covered this because it is something that people need to talk about more uh, because, frankly, it, it's not enough. People just look at party lines and they look at the color of your skin and ethnicity and they just make assumptions and think that's the way it should be. And I just don't think we're going to move ourselves into a productive uh, world. You know, we're not, we're not going to make any progress if we continue to think in that way. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that. That was an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, always, always happy to have you back on to talk more about this because uh, I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm always open to, to talk and to, to discuss these kind of things too, because I agree with you hundred percent. I think, you know, I, I've never experienced any kind of racism from, you know, anybody from the, the right. And I have, you know, friends of all colors and uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's always, you know, people calling me a racist more often than not. And it's like, well, what did I do? It's like, oh, well, you know, they always make some sort of derogatory comment instead of, uh, 
you know, maybe necessarily making a, a logical statement or, or something along those lines. So like I said, it's kind of like that dealing with uh, people trying to pull on emotions and, uh, you know, maybe calling you a racist and, and jumping that gun, which at the end of the day, it's just been kind of like watered down and, and maybe more of like a cheap comment than, uh, you know, w- which is a shame because there is still um, some people out there that, um, you know, probably uh, should uh, or that, that have some like racist ide- ideologies. And of course, like it's not as divisive, I think, as the left tries to make it out to be. Um, like I said, I have, I have friends of all colors and in all shapes and sizes. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, that and uh, I have, especially being down here in Florida, I have a lot of friends that that immigrated to this country or families immigrated to this country from, you know, the neighboring um, Latin American countries, and they did it to escape the socialist governments there. So um, I really hope that and, and they really hope as well, uh, from my conversations I have with them that, uh, you know, this this tide doesn't shift uh, and stay that where it is right now, that it kind of shifts back to more of a you know, democratic and, and, and a free and open uh, country that that they moved here and believing that it was. Everyone is, uh, you know, is seeing that this this current administration really isn't handling things that well. And one of the things that they are not handling well is the economy, though. So, obviously a big topic for us on this show, a big topic on your show. And something we we were chatting about this week is that there was data out um, that over 55% of millennials making more than 250k a year are living paycheck to paycheck. So just unbelievable stats. And, you know, my reaction to it is, I you know, I think this is partly due to how we've structured this economy in the first place where, you know, I love how safety, you know, he talks about this, but it's so true. It's when you make money, you not only have to make it the first time you have to make it the second time. You have to essentially be your own hedge fund manager or pay someone to do that for you to beat inflation. And so when inflation, when the official inflation rate quote unquote was two or 3%, it was a little bit easier to, to beat that with stocks, with bonds and whatnot. But now inflation seven, eight, nine percent. I think we all three of us here agree that the official stats are probably a lot more. I mean, we've seen personal inflation in our lives that are twenty five percent plus. You're trying to beat that, and so you are living paycheck to paycheck because you're maxing out your four hundred one k. You're DCAing into Bitcoin. You're buying stocks when they're down on your own, and you're you're buying real estate. And I think real estate's a big issue here as well, where what is the top expense probably for millennials? You know, I bet they're, they're living in big cities. They're paying massive amounts for rent. If you, if you wanted to buy in a big city and you couldn't do that, but even if you want to buy a nice starter home in a suburb, you, you can barely afford that these days. Some of these housing prices are, are just insane. And especially now with interest rates going up, mortgage rates are up. I saw stats out there that Essentially, for the same house in 2022 right now, the mortgage based on the interest mortgage rates going up as well as housing prices going up, it's about double it was a couple of years ago. So this is just not feasible. And if people making over 250K annually, if they're having trouble with it, then obviously people in the lower income brackets are having trouble with it too. So I, I guess the, 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 the question that, that I've got for you is that 
you know, what, what do we do to potentially fix this? Because, you know, do we, is this something fixable with the Fed? Is this something where we have to structure our whole economy different, other policies? Um, are there, you know, are, are there thoughts out, you know, cause, cause we're out here and we're reading articles that, which is, you know, one of the woke in the wilds we've, we've got this week where we've now got articles saying that Tomagotchi children are, are what we might have in the future. These, these totally robotic kids that don't cost as much. And then we have to then, um, you know, you can ditch them after a couple of years. I mean, this is like legitimate, legitimate articles being written here. And probably some people will have that. So, you know, I, I'm of the belief that we, we kind of need to, to restructure the entire economy. Um, and that includes student debt being out of control. That includes higher education, maybe, taken down some of the expense there and, and maybe not everybody has to have, you know, an MBA and PhD here. So yeah, there, there's just a, a lot of uh, a negative stuff here and I'm curious your thoughts on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, th there's definitely a lot to unpack when it comes to the overall economy, right? So, I mean, the fact that 250 K people are living pay paycheck to paycheck is just absolutely asinine and that should not be the case. Uh, but unfortunately it is. And I think, um, you know, it's because of all the inflation that's going on. It's like I, I'm down here in Florida, which has been very open. And so we've seen like a mass exodus from, you know, particularly from like blue states, like I've been seeing a lot of people leave uh, states like California, New York and, and cities like Boston, too, where uh, they're, they're coming down to Florida, which has been uh you know, kind of tough because a lot of people, they, they get equity in their houses and then there's still like, you know, this bidding war that's just driving up housing prices. And it's slowed down a bit here in Florida for like maybe a week or so. But I know that, you know, here it's still kind of skyrocketing. Uh, I have a few realtor friends and, you know, I was lucky enough to uh, purchase a home in September 2020 and people were kind of calling me an idiot then. Uh, because that was like, you know, the first couple months into the COVID pandemic. Um, and then now they're, they're saying I got lucky. And it's like, well, you know, with all the equity that I've gained, but it, at the end of the day, it, it's not really, you know, equity. It's, it's like kind of just like extreme inflation being, uh, you know, happening through this. And it, the same house that I have right now, I couldn't have afforded to buy it if I waited until right now. And uh, even my mortgage payment like that, that uh, the taxation that that happens on this um, has, has caused my mortgage payment to go up $200 a month. And that's like, you know, that's over two grand a year. And uh, that increases the expensive enough. And, you know, I have uh, I have a duplex. So I, I live in one half and I rent out the other. And so, you know, what I was doing was I was renting it to a long term renter and uh that rent market rent increased uh, $400 a month and it's probably even increased even more now. Um, and, uh, you know, granted, like still I was like all these expenses, whether it's, you know, housing costs or, or something along those lines, you know, contractors are harder to come by um, and uh, materials take longer to get here. All these other factors have made maintaining a house even more expensive. And so in order to kind of combat that, I've had to, you know, fix it up a little bit and then Airbnb it out instead to, to earn a little bit more money so I can, 
you know, uh, anticipate and have the cash for, for some of these things. So I don't have to move. And, um, so I don't have to, uh, you know, with this added, added expense, uh, expenses. And so I think, you know, it's, uh, in a lot of these cities, if they don't already have a house, it's starting to become a pipe dream for a lot of millennials. And it's very sad. I know, you know, and here in Florida and a lot of my friends in Austin still are kind of struggling in some of these booming markets. And, uh, they're kind of trapped too because it's not only you know housing prices but also rent is increasing dramatically like if you live in an apartment complex they'll let you renew but they'll increase the rent two or four hundred dollars more a month um and then you're kind of trapped because if you leave they're like all right see you. we're gonna raise that rent by a thousand dollars a month anyway so it doesn't matter if you stay or go we're gonna find somebody to rent that by uh, severely more money than, than you're paying for it right now. And so, you know, just all these other factors, expenses increasing, it's just making it very difficult for, you know, millennials. And, uh, and I think it, it's not only like trying to save for a house, but, you know, like we're seeing marriage get delayed. We're seeing, you know, the Tamagotchi children too, like all these other things, like um, just pointing to the signs, like millennials, no matter that, that they're, affording or being able to to make more money they're not being able to afford a better lifestyle than our parents grew up with and that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day and i think a bit a big part of that is because of you know the education system that we have going on people aren't becoming financially literate we have a lot of students going into college and now it's kind of to the point where you know it's it, it, colleges say that that everybody should have an opportunity to go to college and then once you get into college, it's everybody should have an opportunity to get a master's degree, MBA, or a PhD. And then it's really muddying down and watering down these degrees. And so, you know, so for some starter jobs, you might need like a master's degree and you'll only make like 40, 50K a year or something like that. And you won't really make as much to, to live by. And then, you know, you'll have the, that expense of student loan debt and everything like that, too. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel for a lot of these people coming out of college now because it's definitely becoming a lot harder of an environment. I know a lot of people that used to live by themselves and now are, are getting roommates because it's becoming more expensive to live out here, too. So there's going to be a world where, you know, at first it was just big cities like a New York or a Boston where it would be better to have roommates and now that's going to trickle down to almost every city in the country where even if you want to live, you know, somewhat outside of a major city, you're going to probably need roommates or find ways to kind of cut expenses. And that's unfortunate, especially with people who have, you know, higher education. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's there's a real issue like we need to be more selective with uh, who can get these higher education degrees, because, you know, at the end of the day, like how many there, there shouldn't really be as many PhD papers and white papers being put out by by all these people and doing research on some of these topics. Right. So I would I have my master's degree. So I've seen a lot of things uh, where it's like, OK, there's there's something where it's like a professor's pet project or something along those lines. You can do that or you can do this or whatever. But um you know, if something is sponsored by somebody or they get a grant to do some research, they're going to be able to do it. And, you know, a lot of these PhDs, like like in various psychology or some of these other degrees, it's like there's such limited careers that you could go into. 
that except for maybe academia where it's like, okay, is there really like, I guess, uh, is, is there another way that we can do this? Because a lot of the, this research that's being done, you just get so like so deep into just one specific topic, you kind of lose sight of the actual real world. And I think that that's what's happening a lot of times in these, uh, you know, in, in academia. And I think like there's kind of, uh, you know, this, this woke virus that's going along in there. And I think, um, you know, it's unfortunate because it's kind of like shaping the way of, of the, the youth and, and people coming into the workforce. And, and it's not only like, you know, where we're, we're seeing it at these major companies, but we're also seeing it at a lot of these major universities where they're becoming super woke. And if you don't have, um, you know, you don't like use pronouns or, or say something along these lines where it's not like inclusive or, or something like that, that, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're just looked down upon or look different at, uh, in school. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely like a, a big tough time for a lot of people out there. And, and I'm, I'm feeling it myself too. And, um, you know, I, I uh, it, it feels like, you know, like you guys have kind of talked about where a lot of people have to be their own kind of hedge fund managers and figure out ways to grow, grow their wealth because, um, you know, at the end of the day, everything is just getting more and more expensive around them. So I think that's why you're kind of seeing the yellowing into GameStop and all these other things. And I don't think that that's going to stop anytime soon. So um, I hope people can kind of weather this storm and, and get through it. But, um, you know, it's definitely going to be something where I think either the Fed needs to raise, keep raising interest rates and, uh, you know, maybe find ways to not let, uh, you know, people keep buying up more and more houses. Um but I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I, I, the way I see it kind of playing out is these desirable places to live that people are kind of flocking to. That's where housing is going to kind of keep increasing. So like maybe your Florida's, your Texas, and then the places that people are leaving, that's the place where they're going to get, get hit the hardest. So, um, you know, I think like uh, some of these blue states and big blue cities with a lot of bad policies that have kind of made it undesirable to live there are going to kind of get a rude awakening. And so uh, I hope that doesn't happen for the the people that live there and that have their jobs there and kind of work there too. But uh, unfortunately, I think that the mass exodus and people kind of voting with their feet is going to affect uh, housing markets across the United States very differently. Yeah, I, I, uh, that's such great insight. And I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, you know, it's we're definitely seeing a, an exodus of people for leaving. And we, we, I talk about this all the time on the show, uh, being in the New York City area. Um, it's like the, the greatest irony to me when I see all these people, co-workers included, who during uh, the past COVID years where they all migrated to Texas and Florida and yet they continue to bring their their woke ideologies with them. So all the reasons why they complained about the New York City area or Boston, Chicago, those types of places, um, they, it was lost on them that those, the re, all this, the negativity was a byproduct of what they voted for, and they're going to go to a, somewhere new, and they're going to, and what they like about those things are because they're the byproduct of more conservative ideologies, and they don't recognize that, and they're going to come and vote for all that crap. And then I, I think you made a, a great observation as well. It's going to be... So you're like everyone moving into Florida and Texas, like where you are, um, 
your your property values and all that is definitely going to be skyrocketing just because of the demand. But it's not going to be like a similar correlation uh, happening back here on, on the East Coast where one would logically assume with everyone leaving, prices would go down because there's such an influx or, you know, a, a, a huge um, swell of all of these uh, woke like social welfare programs and all these crazy policies that they're passing the prices will continue to rise and it's just going to be that cost is going to be you know put on the backs of the few remaining people here and there's going to be hit with a bigger tab so at a certain point myself included you have to look in the mirror and say does this financially make sense for me to stay where i am and i think the answer increasingly day by day becomes no uh, so I've, I've been having that conversation uh, in terms of like the real estate bubble that you that you're that you've been talking about I've personally been seeing that over here where I have friends who've recently all gotten married and they're, you know, having kids and, and buying houses. They've had to go 100, 150 over asking because they've been getting outbid by so many people, uh, people making offers before even setting foot in, in the place, saying no to doing inspection, like making these ridiculous offers that we have just never seen before. And, you know, I feel for my friends who are who are putting themselves in these financial constraints like going well above their means to get this house that they you know envision their family growing up in and i i think we are you know rapidly accelerating towards a recession frankly i think we already are in one but when it comes to housing i think we are we are free falling towards one and maybe a year from now or two the house they bought might be worth a lot less than they paid for it and and i hope i'm wrong for their sake but uh, that's really what i'm seeing here so, you know, I, I, your perspective is really interesting because, you know, Florida is definitely a state that SB and I look think about fondly. And, and, you know, we look at it as like kind of the model state that we wish other states followed. And when we contrast that where we're, we're from, you know, being in the New York City area, it's just night and day. Um, you know, we have huge problems with homelessness, crime. Uh, New York City, you hear about all these shootings, robberies on the subway. Um, it's just not a safe place. Um, it's not like I, I you know, I, I, I'm fearful whenever my fiance has to take public transportation by herself. Like, um, it's just not a, a not a good time right now. Um, and it's it's all again a byproduct of these woke ideologies that are just running free. So, you know, I, I, we want to take a pulse check with you. Like, how's life in Florida right now? Is it as you know, is it as free and and, and uh, you know, just kind of. Uh, laid back and just kind of you know ideal as as SB and I think it is, or you know what's kind of the vibe of the people there? Like, uh, are, are people happy with life there? Are people happy with uh, with Ron DeSantis and, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a couple people, um, you know, outside of like my friend group uh, on the shows and everything. They said that they know people that might be left leaning or things like that that are very happy with Ron DeSantis. So. I think, uh, you know, he, he might have a, a good shot at, at running for president if he, if he ends up doing that, because here in Florida, he's very well liked. And, you know, as far as like the openness and things like that, I mean, it's it's almost seems like when I hear things, it's like a different country. So um, I have a friend who works at a company in Boston who, you know, tells me that he still to this day has to get you know, a weekly COVID uh, test, has to you know, just recently lifted getting the masks. 
um, and that, you know, there was a, a vaccination card thing that, that he has to show or has to get all these boosters and everything like that. Um, and, you know, the entire time, like I, I didn't get the vaccine because you know, I, I have a background in, in biomedical engineering. That was what my undergrad was in. And uh, a lot of people that go from my degree get into things with like the FDA and a lot of research and uh, a lot of human testing. So I didn't do anything on like the cell level, but I did a lot of things where it was just basic. Like I did uh, a lot of like motion capture work where it was people doing like sports-based activities and things like that. But the amount of hoops and bounds I had to jump through in order to get uh, put sensors on somebody and have them walk 10 feet back and forth was insane. And, um, you know, I just kind of saw a lot of the, um, you know, maybe the, uh, the shortcuts that they took to get this passed. Uh, and, it, and it had me a little worried. And, you know, here in Florida, that wasn't, um, you know, necessarily a big deal. Like nobody really cared. Uh, I never really got once asked. Uh, I never got asked to show a vaccine card or anything like that. Um, you know, before, um, I guess it was kind of standard where everybody was not wearing masks. You could walk around the Tampa airport, uh, without a mask. You could, you could ride Ubers without a mask, even though they would, uh, um, you know, Uber was still kind of requiring that, uh, yeah, it was just kind of like open and free. And I think like even, you know, some people I know, like we, we talked to, to Joey and Len in Canada and like, I think they went in a lockdown and that in that same weekend, I rode like a party bus with, with like 30 of my friends where we were jammed in, just jamming. Like I'd have to like, we were like body to body to each other. So it was like, things like that was just always going on. And I think the biggest uproar we had was like the first couple weeks in the pandemic, they shut the beaches down. Um, and it was like right around this time. Right. So, um, it was like kind of coming close to the summertime and everybody was like, what the hell is going on? Like, you know, if you're within six feet of me at the beach you're too close anyway, so just let the beaches be open. And, uh, yeah, so everybody's just been kind of like, you know, go with the flow. Like if you want to wear a mask, go ahead, wear the mask. If you don't like, you don't have to, like, I don't really see like too many people being confrontational about it or anything like that. Um, but like, I mean, for me, like I maybe stopped really living my life for like a couple weeks um, with like the lockdown stuff. But I think like starting in maybe June or July of that pandemic uh, in 2020, I was playing basketball with uh, a bunch of guys and they were actually like all like dads and like some of them are like grandparents. I think the oldest person playing with us at, at that time was like 62 or 63 or something like that. And they were doing it for exercise. And so, you know, obviously we weren't wearing masks, wearing playing basketball. So it's always been kind of uh, open and very, uh, you know, different compared to what I'm hearing from these other cities. And uh, yeah, I, I just think like overall, um, it's it's been very nice to live here. And, and I've been lucky and blessed to live um, in Florida and, and DeSantis kind of keeping it open while I've been here, especially um, during like all these, uh, all this craziness, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been, uh, it seems like every time I see something on social media or somebody going to a different place, it's almost like it's a, it's a foreign country, um, <laughs> all these kind of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've enjoyed it and, uh, 
yeah, everything that you probably hear about Florida is uh, is probably true, except for maybe like the uh, the Florida man memes. I think those are. <laughs> That's so refreshing to hear. Um, yeah, I, when when it comes to COVID regulation over here, it's just completely anti sense uh, science and nonsensical. Like um, they, for example, like NBA players, if you play for either the Nets or the Knicks and you weren't vaccinated, you weren't allowed to play at Barclays or at MSG, but visiting players who were unvaccinated could play there. Um, so there was a famous moment where Kyrie Irving just attended a Brooklyn Nets game as a fan, un- unmasked and unvaccinated. So and that's just one illustration, but it's just completely illogical. Um, so glad to see that not all of our states are lost. But uh, but look, you know, we uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna start to wrap things up here. But we have two more quick ones for you, Brandon. So th- thanks for uh, staying on with us. I've I've personally been really enjoying this. So uh, so glad that we had you. But uh, two quick ones. So uh, we know that uh, you know I know you're a, a loyal listeners which we appreciate so you know that we're big fans of uh the woke in the wilds a segment that we have so uh curious if you have any uh that you want to share with uh, with our audience today yeah um so we didn't really go over this one uh i kind of tweeted it out too from from like my my personal account and i think i actually sent it to uh to sb um but the uh, girl bossification of the opioid addiction. So I don't know if you guys kind of saw this, but I'm not sure which city it was in to be. Oh, no, it actually, yeah, it was in New York City, actually. But it, there's a, a girl that's pictured. Uh, it looks like a, a Hispanic or maybe African-American girl uh, who's kind of standing there. And she uh, has this quote that says, don't be ashamed you are using, be empowering, be empowered that you are using safety, safely. Ugh, sorry, I, I messed that up a couple times. But that just absolutely just, I, I wanted to lose it when I saw that because it's getting to the point where I think that we're, we're getting so, you know, people need to be so open-minded to everything that it's like, it's going to start getting to the point where we're, we're going to start encouraging people to you know, almost like, do activities that are going to kill themselves. And I think that that it's, it's been going on for far too long. There's a far like, there's a big, big mental health crisis in the United States. And I think you guys have kind of covered this uh, for a few weeks. And I think like, there has to be a line where you guys cannot you cannot say some things like this and encourage the use of hard drugs. They're illegal for a reason, right? So I think, uh, you know, girl bossification of, uh, you know, using opioids in this crisis is not only like just detrimental to people's health, but it's just a sign of how, how poorly like our society is doing. If like, you know, you have to be empowered to be using heroin or other opioids or, and things like that, which could potentially kill you. And it's like, you know, you guys have, uh, I was listening to that San Fran episode where you're seeing, you know, people all drugged out and like, those things are not okay. Like that doesn't make for a healthy society. Like, what are you going to tell a kid that's like three, four years old walking through San Francisco with their parents and sees some guy 
drugged out of their mind, just laying on the ground. Like kids might not understand all these things, but they definitely absorb these kind of things. So I think like we're running into a huge, huge issue here. And I'd love to hear like maybe you guys get into a little riff about this as well, about, uh, you know, what you guys think about uh, maybe kind of trying to normalize some things like like drug use and, and things like that. Yeah, look, we talked about it last pod, and I'm so glad that TB had that firsthand experience to share because this is a travesty. This is a disaster. If you look at the rate of opioid uh, overdoses, especially fentanyl, I mean, this this thing is exponentially higher than a Bitcoin chart. So it's unbelievable what's going on. It seems like almost nobody is talking about it. There's no solutions being presented. And this really should be the, the number one or one of the top topics in our political discourse today. Why are so many people starting to use drugs? Why are cities encouraging it? I mean, it was incredible hearing that they've basically got mobile heroin mobiles where you can just go up there and use. And so this is kind of the same it's the same thing that you were talking about, I think, earlier in the show, where the, the, these liberals, the left, they are trying to, you know, come with emotion and and be all nice about how to actually solve problems. So instead of being very hard on the drug scene, they go, oh, they can do drugs. It's OK, but just to make sure they're using it safely. No, using fentanyl in any way is using it unsafely. And I think there's a lot of people out there, too, that it, it's not even that they're trying to use fentanyl as, as a hard drug. It's that they, they might be doing something like coke that's being laced with fentanyl and they're dying unexpectedly. So, you know, that's extremely sad for the family of those people who they don't even know if, if it was a, a, a coke fueled bender gone wrong or if they were actually having real mental issues and using the take take off of that. So I think the the mental kind of health crisis in this country uh, uh un- unbelievable now and we we've talked about it a lot in the pod but it's due to societal decline it's due to bad economic policies it's due to bad policies of getting people in the workforce a lot of issues with uh the education system as you as you talked about so it's just kind of all of these issues i think wrapped into one and then when you see something as striking as hey it's pretty much okay to use fentanyl. That's just insane. And, and look, this isn't only fentanyl too. I mean, what we're seeing with San Fran and, and a, lot, a lot of cities too, but it's kind of known there, is that you've got the Walgreens of the world shutting down because people are going in and they're stealing. I think you can steal less than $1,000 uh, and you don't get charged for it. So that happens a lot of the time. Um, and then you get gaslit by the media that goes, oh, no, they, they just had uh, Walgreens. They had too many stores in a small location, and that's why they're closing it down. It's got nothing to do with, um, with, with the policies and with, with the soft on crime policies. Um, I think you also hear it when, when you've, you've basically got, I mean, so, so much crime going on in these cities. Someone can, can almost murder someone, and they get off of bail the next day. So – Again, it's like the left is trying to claim that Republicans and and even just people to the right of socialism are being way too harsh on criminals. No, part part of the harsher sentences are in actuality making sure these crimes don't happen. So it's so ironic to hear 
that so many of these people, they're moving to Texas and they're moving to Florida from California. And a lot of the times that the people that are still in California, um, they go, yeah, we're not even admitting that this is happening. Or if they do admit that the moving's happening, they'll say, oh, it's because of housing policies are messed up. They're never actually admitting that the cities that are being run this way um, are, you know, they're, they're negative because of the policies. So um, uh, I'm glad that you gave us the Florida perspective because we needed that being, being in the Northeast here. I mean, we see stuff like uh, the shootings in the subway. We see stuff like using these drugs, like hair, like heroin and fentanyl are okay. Um, and, it, and it's just really unbelievable. So yeah. Um, TV, any, any thoughts on that before uh, I introduce our final segment here? No, I, I would just say that for those who are still listening, uh, definitely check out the San Francisco episode because, look, like it's a it's a common talking point from the right. I totally get it. Where California and San Francisco and LA are like often used as their the scapegoat. Um, but look, I I literally traveled there. What you hear is is very very much real, unfortunately. So um, I, I really kind of detailed my trip there and what I saw. It, it's all very sad. I, I don't say this like with glee to dunk on on the libs. Like I'm very sad that our country allows cities like this to, to kind of crumble and rot away like that. Um, but uh, but no, I, I think we'll, we'll wrap it there. Um, SB, I know that um, I think you had one more segment you wanted to dive into. This, this, this will be a quick one and then we'll, we'll wrap. But. Uh, do you want to take brains into our, our very last one? I do. Yeah. So this segment, this is a new one. Um, we'll uh, we'll get to the name in a second. But Brandon, I, I just shot you uh, in our group chat what um, we want to talk about here. So basically for the audience that's not going to see this, this is from a couple weeks ago. Um, an OnlyFans personality. So if anyone doesn't know what OnlyFans is, it is uh, women essentially selling their pictures of, of themselves to fans that subscribe to them. So you can pay $10 a month uh, for a subscription of a stream of photos from these women. Um, for, for more money than $10, you can unlock photos and videos. For more money than that, you can get personal uh in, you can get personal videos dedicated to you um, for a lot more money. So this is just in general, I think, a terrible sign of the state of society in, in the current moment because we've got, you know, women is essentially almost prostituting themselves out um, and it's totally legal. Um, this company makes so much money every year. I, I really don't even think this should, this should be allowed, but it is. But what we had here is... One of the top OnlyFans personalities is now advertising on billboards. So you've got your, you know, billboards. Everyone's seen them on the highways. You know, you put movies there. You put McDonald's there. Hey, you're getting off of the exit. Um, I've even seen, I, I follow the, the wireless industry. Like what, what T-Mobile might do if they, if they just recently put um, radio is on a wireless tower or built a new one, they'll say, hey, T-Mobile now has service in this area. So this is this is a common advertising mechanism that companies that advertise on TV, they're using these billboards. Well, now we have an OnlyFans girl advertising the link to her OnlyFans, the webpage um, to, uh, I just, it's, I'm almost speechless on this. So, uh, Brandon, we, we want to give you the last word on here to respond to this. But before we do, um, 
to drop the name of the new segment, we're going to call this Woken Stroke from now on. That, that title's amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Um, well, okay, so <laughs> I might have like a little bit of a different perspective of this from you guys. Uh, so I think it's kind of a shift that's happening, right? So there's like always this, uh, there was always this sexualization of women on billboards um, when it came to, you know, maybe things like Calvin Klein or maybe some models, right? So we're seeing a shift in those kind of models where it's like, okay, well, you know, everybody is beautiful. You know, we even had the one where it was like in my Calvin's, I think it was like this year where, uh, maybe you guys talked about that as well, where it was like the male who's pregnant uh, with the big old stomach. And so I think like it's this shift where people are trying to say like the sexualization of everybody is OK. And, uh, you know, what is sex like sexy, I guess, is like to to the eye of the beholder or whatnot. Um, you know, I think I'll, OnlyFans is kind of like a product of of what the economy is kind of in it's like well women know that there's a bunch of horny dudes out there and that uh you know at the end of the day people are going to uh you know pay for for what they want i guess and so you know men have these desires right to, to kind of uh you know kind of uh at the end of the day just just bust a nut right <laughs> so um i I think like, you know, with the, the pandemic and everything like that, it just kind of opened people up to, to this. And, you know, before it was kind of this hush hush thing where where it was only kind of happening in strip clubs and and other like kind of adult things like that. But now it's like porn is just so accessible um, where it's like, OK, well, you know, some of these people, some of these girls might need to. Uh, make a living and they found out that they can make a great living on OnlyFans. And so I don't know. I it's kind of like a weird uh view for me where I think like, okay, these girls are are trying to become like an entrepreneur and uh you know at the end of the day like they're using what they got and you know I, it's it's kind of similar to either being like a stripper or like maybe you know doing some other things like using their looks to to make money. Um, and granted, like I, I would hate it if my daughter was doing that. And I think it's like a sign of, of the society, uh, that we're kind of in right now where it's like, you know, some of these girls might not have a choice, um, to, to like, and they need to find other ways to make an income. And then they find out like, Hey, you know, there's a bunch of horny dudes online who, you know, are losing their, uh, social skills and can't go to a bar or anything like that and go and talk to a girl because everything's behind the screen these days. So everybody's being a little bit more awkward um, and can't really have that face-to-face conversation. So um, they're a little bit afraid and then they blame it on social anxiety and all this stuff. So they just, uh, instead of like kind of like owning up and just realizing, Hey, like this is something I got to do. They just like figure out, like, hey, I, I'm just gonna, uh, you know, woke and stroke here. Um, <laughs> in case oh, man. Yeah. Well, 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 hey, I think, um, you know, we, this has been fantastic. I, I think, TB, you, you said it before. Um, this was, this was a marathon episode, but I think we needed it because there were so many themes to cover. Um, and there was so much of your personal story, both what you're doing with your pod and your content. 
and also your your background, then I think you know the audience is just going to be um, really really happy to hear from 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 our fans. So, Brandon, really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I I had a blast, and I I think uh, you know I'm I'm hopeful we can do one of these again. Um, certainly on this pop podcast and and maybe on yours as well. So I'm um, I'm really pumped and you know TB uh, a- a- any closing thoughts here as well. Yeah, just just a big thank you, Brandon. Uh, this was this was awesome. Uh, it, it's 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 really great too because we like connected the Brandon via like our Bitcoin takes. It wasn't even like anything to do with politics or anti woke. It was just like people from like different sides, um, uh, like different spaces who uh, we got friendly and then recognized that we had similar viewpoints on the world and, and like values and all that. So uh, this was like a very organic friendship that came from this. So um, I think it's just like refreshing when that happens. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed your, your analysis on the financial markets and Bitcoin. I mean, you, I mean, absolutely everyone listened to uh, Greenlit Candles. It's a, a hell of a podcast. Brand does a fantastic job, but um i i also just love that you know your take on our show like honestly just you've you've gelled so well with us you just fit in as if you've been doing the woke antidote with us this entire time so we definitely have to have you back because i just had an absolute blast doing this yeah fellas thank you so much for having me on like i I'm, i'd love to come back whenever i mean i'm sure we can uh, rant on some more topics and uh yeah, for sure. You guys are always welcome back on on any of my podcasts as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, you guys keep doing what you're doing. Keep fighting that good fight. Um, you know, calling people out on, on their bullshit, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, some of the ways that we're going to start fixing some of these uh, issues that we got in our society is just, you know, straight up just talking about it and having some views. And, and uh, you know, maybe some of your listener, listeners might disagree with me or disagree with you guys, but you know, I, I'm always open to have these conversations and, uh, you know, I'm really glad you guys gave me the opportunity to come on and, and talk with you. Yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll definitely be doing this again soon. Um, you know, whatever podcast it is, this was uh, this was a great time. So, Hey, with that, I, I had a blast boys. And I think, uh, we will, uh, see our, the woke antidote audience pretty shortly. <laughs>